open up, please, to Galatians 3, where we're going to be this morning, Galatians 3. Uh, and as you turn in there, I'd like to thank um, everybody, this church as a whole. Uh, so October is Pastor Appreciation Month, and uh, all year long, I always, uh, this church does a great job of making me and our family feel appreciated, but October, you guys always go above and beyond um, with kind words and food, which are just both just speak to my heart. So thank you very much for everybody uh, who contributed, everybody who wrote notes, everybody who just, uh, thank you. Thank you. I, I am blessed and honored and humbled to be able to get to be a pastor of this church. And so it is very, uh, thank you very much for everything you guys do for us and have done. Um, so like I said, we're going to be in Galatians 3 as we continue walking through in our Freedom in Christ series in the book of Galatians. Repetition, ritual, and routine. Repetition, ritual, routine. For many people, when they think of those words, they think of another R word. They think of redundancy. For some, these words, they think of boring, uneventful. It's already known. Who cares? It's lifeless. Still, for others, they love the known. They love the consistent and the constant. For them, there is order and peace. It is life-giving. When you read through the Bible, the idea of remembering and the amount of times repetition shows up is there for a reason. God knows that we are people who forget, who lose sight, who need to be reminded, who need to remember. And so over and over in his word, he tells us to remember. He tells us to remember him. Remember the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. When you eat and drink, do this in remembrance of me. I'm struck this morning with this idea of repetition because there are times where the, the way that we preach through the Bible, if you're, if you're a guest with us, the way we, we, we usually take a book of the Bible and just kind of walk through section by section, and that's good, and it's, it's helpful in a lot of ways, but sometimes what can happen is that we can get lost in the details, and we can forget the, the bigger picture of this being a letter. And that's why I'm, I'm so glad we're reading through Galatians as a church every day, one chapter, Mondays are Galatians 1, Tuesdays Galatians 2, and we're reading through to keep that full scope of this letter intact to kind of balance out what we do on Sunday mornings. Because we've got to remember that this is a letter from Paul to these churches. And what would have happened in that day is Paul would have penned this letter, got it sent to the churches. The churches would have gathered. News would have broke. Paul, Paul sent us a letter. Everybody get together. They would have gotten together. They would have stood the whole time and read this letter straight through. And the 25, 30, I don't know how long it takes to read it in Greek, but the, however long it takes, they would be together and read it straight through like you would any other piece of mail. You get a piece of mail, you open it, and you read that letter straight through. You don't take bits and pieces. They didn't read through and stop to, to teach on different pieces. They would go through this whole letter. And so in it, when we remember that, we remember that this is to be read and, and looked at as one big chunk, we can understand why Paul is repeating himself over and over again. Because of the important topics that he's tackling in this letter or any other epistle you read throughout the New Testament, Paul is trying to drive home a point. We always say this about the Bible, right? When something is important, it's repeated, and it's repeated in close proximity. So Paul is driving home an important point. There's freedom in Christ. Justification comes, your innocence before God. It comes by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. That's repeated over and over again. So that by the end of this letter, Paul's hearers would understand this valid and important point. 
And so by doing this, by repeating himself, he's building his case, and he's building upon his case. He doesn't just re repeat himself verbatim, but rather he adds to it, and he builds, and he puts, it's kind of putting kindling around a fire. He says, look at all these points. Look at all of this truth. So for us this morning, he, he takes kind of a different twist at what he's already said because he's made his argument. He's made his case very clear. Justification by grace through faith. It's not about the law. It's not about our works. It's not about what we are able to do or win or earn or work our way to God. And so now that that's where he's kind of set the bar, he said this is the truth. The justification, justification comes by grace through faith. What he's going to do this morning is really give evidence to support it, put some of that kindling around the fire. He's going to give biblical evidence. He's going to go to Scripture. He's going to go to the ultimate truth to say this has been the plan, this has been what God has called us to forever. God himself, the word, Scripture, God revealing himself to us, tells us of this mode of justification by grace through faith. And so today is one of those fun days for me, for somebody who gets to just sit in the Bible a lot, and, and I like when the Old Testament and New Testament show up real clear, uh, and they even there's quotes, and it, it, the connecting points are real clear, and that's the kind of morning we got today where we're going to look at a lot of um, Old Testament as well as, because uh, Paul quotes a lot of Old Testament here this morning. So um, I'm going to pray, and then we are going to uh, jump into Galatians. So please, bow your heads and pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. Lord, we pray for the children of our church, for um, those who are, are up in Grace Place. We pray for our Grace Place leaders that they are able to, um, through their actions, through the way that they lead and love and teach, they are able to reveal your love for these kids. God, I pray for us as a church that we might, um, when they see us, when we worship, when we pray, when we gather together, the way we are involved in one another's lives, that the kids of this church would come to know you at an early age, that they would see your grace, they would see your spirit moving amongst us as a people, that they would be drawn to you and that you would save them at an early age so that they might walk with you for a long, long time. God, help us all, whether or not we're Grace Place leaders, help us all to love and serve and lead the kids of this church well. God, we pray for our missionaries around the world, some we have local, some we have in faraway places, that you would continue to encourage them and strengthen them, help us to uh, reach out, help us to keep them in mind as we move throughout our day. God, we pray for New Life West Lakeview and, and Pastor Chad and that community. Lord, I pray that you would continue to strengthen them, build them up, raise up leaders, continue to help them be a light uh, in West Lakeview, continue to, uh, to help them serve, let them serve the, the neighbors around them and, and build relationships as people are moving in, as people are uh, finding themselves in this new place, that they would find a home there at New, new Life West Lakeview. Lord, this morning is one of those days that we have set aside to remember. It's a day where we remember that while we here in America, we here in Chicago, we get to come into a big church building that people drive by and they know it's a church by the architecture. They know it's a church because we got a big lit up sign out front that we can use microphones, that we, can, we don't have to hide who we are. We don't have to hide our faith. We live at a place and a time where we don't have to hide those things, but that's not true around the world. And so today, we, along with our brothers and sisters around the world, we remember and we pray for and we lift up those who are in parts of the world who are persecuted, those who are imprisoned, those who are, lose their lives for the gospel. God, we worship you and we know that 
You know all of those who suffer in your name. There's no one going lost. There's no one under the radar. You know who these people are. And we pray, Lord, for those who are imprisoned for their faith, that they might know, like Paul knew, that though they remain in chains, those chains have furthered the gospel and not hindered it. May those who are imprisoned for the gospel, the, those who are persecuted, may they inspire and embolden their brothers and sisters to speak the gospel out even more. You are the God of all comfort. And so, Lord, we ask for comfort. We ask for your mercy. We ask for your rest. We pray that the, the gospel would go forward, that the Holy Spirit would move in the places and people and politics that are against you, that there would be changed hearts, changed re regimes. Lord, we ask this morning that you would remember your servants, that you would strengthen them and encourage them. May they not lose heart. And as they gather and they sing your praises at the top of their whisper because they can't be loud. As they pass one another and they give just a, a slight nod, just a little indication that, of who they are as they, as they meet in secret, as they continue to be lights in very dark places, Lord, that they would not lose heart but find their next step and every step after in you. Lord, give them boldness to continue in hard, rocky, difficult places to be lights. Help them, Lord. God, we lift up our brothers and sisters who are in chains. We lift up our brothers and sisters who are persecuted. For the families who have lost loved ones because of the gospel. That they might find comfort and grace and rest in you. They might know that one day, there will be that day when all will be vindicated where the pains of this world will be gone. And those who have suffered for the gospel will be celebrated. There will come a day where we will understand the why. And it's for your glory at all times. God, we thank you and we praise you. Lord, as I preach, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. We're going to be in Galatians chapter 3, starting in verse 10 this morning. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So as I said, there's going to be a lot of Old Testament quotes here this morning. They're not going to be on the screen. I'll give you references. You can write them down. You can look them up yourself, but I will read them to you. The first one is in... Right in verse 10 is Deuteronomy 27, 26. Paul starts here in verse 10. He says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. To rely on works of the law, all who rely on means you trust in, you count in your works. You have put your faith in your works. That's what it means to rely on. 
All of you this morning relied on your chairs to hold you up when you sat down. You trusted them. You put your faith that when you sat down, those chairs were not going to fall apart. Paul is transitioning here from Abraham and his righteousness by faith that we talked about last week, that Abraham didn't do anything, that he lived well before the law, that circumcision didn't come until after his righteousness was given to him by God. God made a covenant with Abraham. Abraham believed and trusted God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And so Paul is transitioning from talking about Abraham's righteousness by faith to those seeking righteousness by the law. Because if Abraham's righteousness is only due to his faith, why then would we expect it to be any different for us? Why would God change things? What Paul is saying here is that, look, if you are behind the eight ball, as it were, if you are trying to appeal to God, if you are trying to earn your salvation, earn your justification with God by your works, you are already starting behind. Because the law does not bend or break. If you want to live by the law, you must live by all of it. If you fail in one spot, you have completely failed. You are cursed, is what Paul says. The Jewish leaders, those who still clung to the law, they believed that the law would lead them to blessing. But Paul says bluntly it was actually the opposite, that the law would lead them to a curse. If we put ourselves in the Pharisees, in the Jewish leaders' shoes for a second, in their sandals for a second, this is what they've always held to. This is what they've always known, that the law was there to guide them, that the law was there to help them. And change can be hard. And this gospel message, this message of grace, this change was a complete shock to the system. Not only that, not only does it seem counterintuitive to everything they've known for generations, but then you also have places, you have things like Psalm 119.1. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Even the writers, even David says, the law is good. You are blessed if you walk in the law. You see, sometimes in the Bible when the word law shows up, it refers specifically to the law of Moses, to the, to the commandments and instructions there, but also it can mean, in a generic sense, the, the word of God itself, the Bible. And so if we cling to that second idea, then yes, walking in the law of the Lord, walking in the word of the Lord, it is a path that leads to blessing. When we take it and we take the whole biblical narrative together, but when we refer to the law, specifically when we're talking about the rules and regulations and creating a works-based interaction with God, that will lead to a curse. When Paul says that living by the law would lead to a curse, again, remember, the law is not bad. Right? We said the law came from God. God is good. God gives good things. Therefore, the law is not bad. But when we use it incorrectly, it's no longer helpful. The law was never meant to save us. That's why within the law itself, there is the sacrificial system. That's what God said. Here is the law. Here is the command. Here's the Ten Commandments. Here's the instructions. And when you break those, here is the sacrificial system that goes along with the law. When you fail, here is the temporary thing that is going to point you to a better ultimate sacrifice in Jesus that will keep things moving. Like I said, Paul's scripture in verse 10, is he's referring to Deuteronomy 27, 26, and it said, cursed, cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them, and all the people shall say amen. Paul's scripture reference makes it clear that the only way to be justified by your works, by the law, 
is to complete every aspect of the law perfectly every day, all day, until you die. Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. It says confirm and do them. Not just know them, not just teach them, not just think about them or like them, but know it and do it. And there we will come up short. I mean, if you just take just the Ten Commandments, right? The law is 600 plus commands. But if we just look at the Big Ten, we look at the Ten Commandments, and even just out of that Ten, you take like, honor your father and mother, do not bear false witness, so don't lie, do not covet. Okay, the law is, like I said, 600 plus laws. If you just take those three, basically every human has broken some combination of those three by the time they're like seven. So right there, you're done. Because Leviticus said, you have to keep all of it perfectly every day, all the time, always. That's the standard. But you've already messed it up. So for those who think they can win, earn, work their way to God to do, as long as I do more good than bad, I can get my way to heaven. God has said, no, that's not the standard. It's not if you do more good than bad. No, the standard is perfection. And not only that, but you've lost this game even before you actually started playing it. And so to continue trying to pursue your justification, your innocence, based on yourself and your work is a fruitless endeavor that leaves you cursed. And this curse is not the curse of Satan. You're not cursed by another person. You're not cursed by yourself. You are cursed by God himself. Jesus says in Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who kill the body and cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. It is the wrath of God poured out on sins. Yes, our God is good and gracious and loving and merciful, but he's also just and he's righteous. He has a wrath. He has an anger. And those things get poured out on sin one way or the other. So Paul goes from Abraham and his righteousness by faith to those who want to get righteous by works and allows the Bible to show them that's going to lead you to nothing but a curse. And so with that logic, with that thought process, Paul moves on to some more biblical evidence for the belief that justification is by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. Look at verse 11. It is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Here he's quoting the prophet Habakkuk, Habakkuk 2.4, in which it says, Behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Righteous live by faith. Righteousness comes by faith. Remember, we already talked about this. Abraham, his righteousness was given to him by faith. God credited it to him. It was found in his faith. This verse in Habakkuk is quoted often in the New Testament. Specifically, there's three different times. There's here, there's Romans, uh, and there's one more in Corinthians in which God uses this verse and he emphasizes different aspects of it, actually. And what he's telling us here, what God is telling us here this morning is he, through Paul, quotes and goes back to the prophet Habakkuk. What he's telling us is that even if you could somehow live up and fulfill all that the law requires of you, you still wouldn't be right with God because your life would be all about you and your actions and your righteous living. You would not be living by faith, but you would be living by and for and through yourself. 
Pastor David Guzik says, if your life is all about living under the law, then God does not find you righteous. If your day-to-day drive is solely focused on, I gotta be a good person, I gotta make sure my good outweighs my bad, then you have misunderstood and misconstructed God's commands and instructions and desires for how we are to live. Rather, he says, the righteous live by faith. Live by, live by means it's the thing that is driving us, the thing that, is, the thing that I am dependent on, that main operating system within us that is keeping everything else up and running. If you are in or want to be in a right relationship with God, then your driving operating system has to be faith. He said it in Galatians 2.20, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the what? Give me the words. The Son of God, it's up there. The Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It is not works. It is not legalism. It is not this black and white view of the world that functions to turn everything into a question of, well, did you follow the rules or not? It's not anything other than faith in Christ that makes us right with God. It's easier to boil things down into that legalistic black and white view of things, to say it's good or bad, left or right, pick one, that's it, and to have no grace, no mercy, no compassion. It's a lot easier way to live, but it's a lot more broken way to live and has nothing to do, and it's completely counterintuitive to what the gospel has delivered to us. So as we look at the argument Paul is making here, as he clings to this idea of justification by grace through faith, in verse 10 in that Deuteronomy quote, he shows us that we're not perfect. We've already messed up, so therefore we are already, we've already failed at keeping the law and meeting God's standard of perfection. So we're already stuck. And then here in verse 11, Habakkuk shows us that even if you could somehow be perfect, even if you could somehow be the one who keeps all of the law perfectly all of the time, and you were this special one, even if you got to that point and you got before God, you have still missed the mark completely because you have made yourself all about yourself. You have made your life all about living and trusting in yourself and not living by faith in God. Paul will continue in verse 12. He's going to lay out clearly what he's been saying this whole time throughout this whole letter. You cannot try and pursue living by faith and living by your works. These things are antithesis of each other. They do not intersect. You are either doing one or the other, and either way, you must be all in. Look at verse 12. The law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Here he's pulling from Leviticus 18. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Yoda said, do or do not, there is no try. If you are choosing the law, you've got to go for it. There is no halfway. There is no way of thinking that says, Well, I'll do my best to make myself right. I'll do my best to do nice things, good things, good outweighing the bad and all of that. And then the places where I fail, the places where I mess up, then my faith in Jesus will make up for the failures and it'll just kind of fill in the cracks. That way of thinking and living puts Jesus in the back seat and minimizes him to just clean up your mess 
and makes yourself and your abilities your actual God, which then brings us back to the Ten Commandments and the whole do not have any other gods. And so once again, you have missed the mark. If you're going to try and earn your way to God, then you are forsaking the grace of Christ offered to you at the cross. It is grace or it is works. There is no hybrid model to justify you. Paul is not saying choose grace and live however you want, though. Right? That would be the argument. Okay, well, I'm going to pick grace so I can do whatever I want. I'm not under any law. I'm not under any restrictions. I can do whatever I want. No, the gospel is not licensed to live pursuing sin at all times. He's already taken care of this argument. Christ is not a servant of sin. Certainly not. May it never be. Rather, the gospel frees us to pursue living in light of the grace and mercy and love and forgiveness and kindness showed to us by God. And to reflect that to the world, and though we will do it imperfectly, we know that we are not condemned for our failures. Because Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy said perfection is the standard, and we've already failed. So we cannot win no matter how hard we try. Not on our own, at least. Habakkuk said even if you could somehow attain your own perfection, if you, it would only reveal that you actually have no faith in God. And here Leviticus said to choose your own works, righteousness is to not only fail, but it is to reject God entirely by rejecting the grace offered to you by Jesus at the cross. These three verses remind us that if on our own we are stuck, we are cursed, we are unable to do anything ourselves, we have a serious problem and a serious need for help. Verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Christ redeemed us. That word redeemed is to buy back, to buy out of. When wars would happen at that time, important prisoners of war, generals and rich important people, they would be ransomed by the conquering country. And the act of buying their freedom was known as redeeming them. Another way this word was used was in regards to the freedom of a slave. Many people at that time, especially were in, slave, were in slavery due to a personal debt they had to another person. And if the slave or the family was able to pay off their debt, then they were redeemed and free. So note, Jesus didn't just rescue us. He paid a price. We were redeemed. That, that means that there was a price to be paid. Redemption points to the payment of a price that sets sinners free. The law left us under a curse. Jesus freed us from that curse by enduring the very curse he freed us from. Innocent Jesus took on our sin and condemnation, and with it, our punishment. He chose. He allowed. He made sure that he was going to end up on that hillside, strung up with those nails through his wrists and ankles. His body, having been beaten and tortured all night long, collapsing under the pain, his lungs gasping for air, and every breath, literal agony as he tried to lift himself up, the weight hanging on these nails that were driving through his muscles and tendons. This was done for us. This was done so that you and I might have a shot 
might have a chance, might have the opportunity to be free, to be alive, to be new, to find rest and peace and joy and fulfillment, to see and experience and know fully what we can only see and know and experience partially here, the fullness and beauty and majesty and goodness of the God who made you and knows you and loves you. Pastor Tim Keller says, God takes our misery and suffering so seriously that he was willing to take it upon himself. Here in verse 13, there's another Old Testament reference. It's Deuteronomy 21. Uh, I'm going to give you verses 22 and 23. If a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. And when this is written in Deuteronomy, it wasn't thinking of death on a cross because the Romans and their twisted minds hadn't invented the cross yet. It was a criminal hung after execution. There were certain things that if you were executed, you would be killed, usually actually by stoning, and then your body would be hung up on a tree as a public display. And that was oftentimes considered worse than the death. It was the exposure of the body to the wild, to the animals, to the weather. It was shame and humiliation upon that person's legacy and their family going forward. So interestingly enough, when Jesus dies on the cross, he is taken off of the cross so he didn't stay the night. After he dies, he is taken down and put into the tomb. Typically, when the Romans executed someone, they left him up there until there was just nothing left and they pulled it down. They were up there for days and days, weeks and weeks. It could take days for you to even die on a cross, and then, you know, they just kind of left you there. But Jesus comes off the cross, and he was laid in a tomb, and he stayed there for three days, and on that third day, he rose and defeated sin and death and shame and guilt because these things are not things for the family of God. See, the curse that we were under due to the law, due to our sin, these curse didn't just go away. It didn't just magically disappear. Jesus took on the curse and all that came with it. When Paul says that he who knew no sin became sin, Jesus was treated like a wicked criminal. He was treated as though he had done the things and much, much more than he was punished for, even though he hadn't. You were bought with a price, Christian. That of Jesus and him crucified. When his body was broken and his blood was spilled, he did it for you and for me and for any and all who would admit their need for a Savior, believe that Jesus died for their sins, and choose him to be their Savior. Yes, it is that easy to just put your faith in, that mo- in a moment, to put your faith in Christ. It is that easy to find justification, to find your innocence, to find redemption. But that doesn't mean that the grace that was offered to you is cheap in any way. It cost Christ dearly and deeply. After Christ was crucified and he rose from the dead, there's that scene where the disciples are hiding, locked in a room. And Jesus appears. And so just by that, we know this is not just physical Jesus, right? This is, this is not just the son of the carpenter that was walking on earth. This is, this is him in a radiant, resurrected form. He is no longer constrained by his, human, his humanity, right? And in that scene, when he's in the locker room with the disciples, that's the famous interaction with Thomas. 
who says, I want to see the scars. I want to know. When Jesus is in that room, he says, okay, come and see the scars. Jesus chose in his resurrected state, he kept the scars on his hands and his feet. In Revelation 5, John gets this image of heaven and he gets an image of the throne room and there's this lamb in the throne room with an authority that no one else had. But that lamb looked though he was slaughtered. And when the lamb uses his authority, those in the throne room of heaven sing, you are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it. For you were slaughtered and your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God. Blessing and honor and glory and power belong to the one sitting on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. One day we will stand before Jesus. Or maybe we'll kneel or lay down. I don't maybe do all of it, but we'll be with Jesus. And we're going to see the scars on his hands and feet. We will see the marks left on our Savior from our sin. But he doesn't keep the scars to embarrass us. It's not about making us feel guilty or ashamed. No, those scars tell us of the love of God. That God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Those scars are a reminder of the love of God, and those scars are just that. They are scars. They are healed wounds. There is healing and life in those scars. Those scars are the marks of victory over sin and death, over self-righteousness and addiction and hate and anger and lust and greed and lies and shame and guilt and fear. Yes, it cost Christ for him to, for it cost him for us to receive the gospel and those scars are an eternal reminder of the goodness and love of God, a love that did the work and makes a way for us. We know that we cannot earn a right relationship with God on our own because we have been redeemed by Christ because the curse has been lifted from us and because the curse was lifted from us by Christ, it leaves us room to for something else. Look at verse 14. In Christ, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. It would have been more than enough for Jesus' life that if Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection would have just removed the curse, removed the condemnation. But our God is generous and our God goes above and beyond. He does exceedingly abundantly more than we could ever possibly comprehend. And he gives us a blessing, the blessing of Abraham, Paul refers to it. The blessing of justification, your innocent standing before God, being not by your works, but by grace through faith in Christ. He says that it might come to the Gentiles, not to them only, but for Paul's argument, he mentions them here specifically as the objects of the abuse of the law. But it might come to the Gentiles. It might come to anyone and everyone as long as they are in Christ, he says in verse 14. So that in Christ the blessing of Abraham might come. Blessing comes freely to the Gentile, to the Jew, as long as their faith is in Christ. We receive the Spirit. We don't earn the Spirit. We don't win the Spirit. We don't gain the Spirit. It is given to us. It is a gift 
by grace through faith. If you this morning are still trying to earn, win, impress God with what you can do for him, you are playing a game that is already over and you lost a long time ago. But that doesn't have to be the end of the story. Because now, here, in this moment, in your mind, in your heart, silently, you can call out to God and admit your need for him. Admit the reality that you have sinned and separated yourself from God. Admit that you can't fix your standing with him on your own. And believe that Jesus died for you, for your sins, to give you forgiveness, to give you new life here and now. You might not have all of the details down, but you know that Jesus went to the cross and died for you, and when he did, he died for your sins. That's enough. God hears that and loves that prayer. And choose to receive Jesus as your Savior. Choose to be crucified with Christ. Choose to live by trusting God's goodness for you and in you. Choose life over death. Choose light over darkness. Choose grace over works. Choose blessing over curse. You can only pick one. Remember that. And choose wisely. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for the chance to gather, to worship, to sing, to read your word, to hear from you. God, we believe that you are in control. We know that you are in control of all things at all times which means regardless of what our earthly motivation was for being here today, for hearing this message today, regardless of how much control we think we have on it, you put things in motion so that we would be in this text this morning, so that we, our hearts would be stirred by you this morning through this text. So God, whatever reason that is, whatever it is that you are doing in our hearts, and it's different for each one of us, God, I pray that we would have ears to hear, that we would pay attention to what you are doing in us, that we would respond to what you are doing in us. I pray that this morning someone would respond to the call in their life, that you are calling them to yourself this morning, that, that today would be that day where they choose you, that they would stop trying to choose themselves, stop trying to work, stop trying to earn, and just rest in the grace that is being given. Rest in the love and goodness. God, may we all rest in that goodness. May we all rest in the gospel. May we all slow down and stop trying to win and work and impress but rather dwell in the grace and mercy and love. And from that, let that flow out and dictate and show us how it is that we are to live our lives. That we would live in response to the gospel. That we would live with the gospel filtering our decisions, filtering our thoughts, filtering our actions. Lord, we come to you this morning. Because we need you. Because we need you every day. There's a reason why you tell us to remember over and over again, because we forget. Lord, let us never forget. Let us never forget the grace and mercy. Let us never forget the love. Let us never forget the sacrifice of Christ. Let it spur us on. Let it motivate us. Let it 
Fill us up so that we can be the lights of the world you have made us to be. God, we thank you and praise you. Amen.